This episode does deal with the death of a child. Please tread carefully if that is a particularly sensitive topic for you. Although Cumberland is a real town, all stories shared via this podcast are entirely fictional. Unless otherwise specified, all characters are made up and share no relations with real people. Despite its overall cheery appearance, with its authentic and vintage feel, Cumberland has a dark side. When strolling through the streets, no matter how comfortable you feel, you are always at the threat of jeopardy. On April 12th of 2006, 12-year-old Claire Walters was walking to her friend's home, only three blocks away from her own. She left at about 9 a.m., with the promise to be home at 6 p.m. that same day. Claire's parents both testified for the fact that Claire was very responsible for her age and was almost always at least 10 minutes early to everything, including curfew. So when she still hadn't turned up by 8 p.m. that night, her parents began to worry. They called Claire's friend Barbara's house in hopes of finding her there, time escaping her. But Barbara's mother confirmed that Claire had left hours before as to get home a tad early, and no one had seen her since. So just a little backstory on this family. Claire and her mother moved to Cumberland in 1998 after her father left them for another woman, causing her mother to fall into a severe case of paranoia. Her ex-husband had been known to sleep around, and she was scared that he would try to win her back and that she wouldn't have the willpower to turn him down. But he never came, and soon her mother settled into their life, even found a new man, who she married four years later. Claire had few memories of her dad, but she just adopted her mother's new love as her father figure. Brian Walters was a mild-mannered man, who worked as a grocery store manager in the next town over. He had graduated high school at the top of his class, and although he had great potential, he bypassed university in order to help his mother, who had been diagnosed with cancer a mere few months before his grade 12 graduation. He was ecstatic when he found Melinda Cast, the newly single mother of one who desperately needed someone to be there for her. Brian stepped up and took the role as father and husband as if this is how it had always been. Melinda Cast was a grocery store clerk, had been since she turned 15 and was coerced to get a summer job. She had been married once before she had married Claire's biological dad, but somehow she always had a knack for picking the worst kind of guys. Husband number one was an alcoholic who treated women as objects. He had a god complex unmatched by anything seen and he was similar in ways to Catherine Knight. Charming and kind until you marry them. Melinda divorced him after three years of verbal and physical abuse, only to be pregnant four years later, and married off in a shotgun wedding to the father of her unborn child. They stayed together for nearly four years after their daughter's birth, but eventually, Melinda couldn't take his cocky attitude and lack of responsibility. She had caught him cheating nearly nine times over the three years, but he promised that he was done every time, until eventually he just left altogether. After scouring the neighborhood between their house and Barbara's for a few hours, 
the Walters came up empty-handed. The girl was nowhere to be found, no traces left. The police found nothing either, but launched a 10-block search for the missing girl. People from all around the small town volunteered to go out in the dark to search for her. Mrs. Walters was a mess inside, but kept it internalized fairly well. She was composed for the most part, and helped search the sixth block. After an hour more of looking in every corner of the neighborhood, the police were alerted by an inhuman scream from block six. Melinda was standing on the side of the road nearest to the vast woods that surrounded the quaint town, her hands over her mouth. There was Claire, her pink dress stained a strange red-slash-brown from mud and what they could only assume was blood. Her face was beaten beyond recognition. The only way her mother recognized her was because of the custom dress that she had sewn not two months prior. Brian took the shaken woman back home, with promises to answer any questions tomorrow. It was late, and neither of them could do anything at that moment. One of the police officers escorted them home, as someone called in the coroner to take Claire's body away to be examined. A week later, the medical examiner's reports are out, and the community was shaken by what they had to say. Claire had extreme blunt force trauma to her back, as well as five broken ribs, a three-inch long fracture to the top of her head, and a broken nose. It was said that she had died at around 7.30 p.m. on April 12th, nearly two hours after she had left Barbara's house. The police aggressively interviewed anyone who had seen her in the 24 hours leading up to her murder, especially Barbara and her mother. When asked if Claire had acted any different when they had been hanging out, Barbara responded with, She acted a bit funny when she first got here. She looked over her shoulder before she walked through the door, but five minutes later, she was acting normally again. Barbara's mother, Amelia Kelly, confirmed her daughter's statement. She had a nervous stance, arms crossed and hunched over, as if guarding herself. But she was fine after a few minutes, her usual chatty self. Two days after the discovery of Claire's body, Mr. and Mrs. Walters were interviewed for the local news station. They answered a few questions through choked-back tears and pleaded mercilessly for anyone to come forward for even one anonymous tip. Any neighbors who had seen something, any friends who had heard something, Nobody called in, though. Inexplicably. This child being abducted in broad daylight went unnoticed. Medical examiners tried desperately to pull fingerprints or dirt from a specific area, but with the hours-long exposure to the grimy water, all evidence of the sort had washed away. Three days after the TV interview from the Walters family, the police received a phone call from a trail builder who had been installing a new trail in the forest, not even a block from the place Claire was last seen. While cutting through the bush and clearing a path, he had come across a distressed patch on the ground where chunks of moss had been torn up and several of the bushes surrounding the small patch had been crushed and cracked. The man had found dark splatters all over the leaves surrounding the area. Police investigated the scene, taking samples of the blood resembling splatters that dyed most of the foliage. The blood match between Claire and what was found in the forest was positive. She had been intact by the woods, but somehow ended up a block over in a ditch. 
When asked about the forest path, Mrs. Walters said, Claire never took that path, and she always told us what route she was taking home in case something like this were to happen. She would definitely have called if she were deciding to take this way home. The police began pulling at straws. They interviewed some of Claire's other friends from school. They interviewed her principal. They even interviewed Melinda Waters' first husband, Luther. But they came up empty-handed yet again. Nearly a month after the discovery of her body, Barbara and her mother stepped through the doors of the police station with hope in their eyes. Barbara had a small handkerchief in her hands, concealing a small chain with a pendant on it that spelt Claire in a dainty cursive font. Barbara and Amelia had been walking to the store, and they had spotted the chain buried slightly in a pile of dirt along the side of the road, two blocks away from the Walters' home. They had picked it up and rushed to the police station as quickly as they could. Upon the delivery of this fresh evidence, the police made rounds about the neighborhood, asking if anyone had seen anything, focusing particularly on the four houses that looked directly upon the spot where the necklace had been found. And finally, someone had good news. Well, the word good is relative. It was one of those old brown vans with heavily tinted back windows, stated Miss Williams, an elderly woman who had moved to the neighborhood after finding out she was gravely ill not three months prior to the incident. Although she was new, Claire had taken the time to bring her a small care package when she first moved in, and often sat with the woman to drink tea. I saw Claire from inside. She was walking past, and I waved at her. But before she could wave back, this big van drove right between us, then took off again not 20 seconds later in the opposite direction. And Claire was nowhere to be seen. Miss Williams wiped her eyes and said with a shaky voice, I never said anything before because I just assumed it was a friend picking her up. But I guess not. Detective Tremblay, the main detective handling the Claire Walters case, sent her on her way. He made a call to the homicide department to begin a search on brown Honda vans in the Comox Valley area and went back to the Walters' home to talk to Brian and Melinda about the van. That sounds vaguely familiar, Melinda told Tremblay, but I honestly could have just seen it around town. Cumberland is growing to be more family-populated. Minivans aren't uncommon. Brian was much more definite in his answer. I saw one just like that not two weeks ago at work. It was parked in the center of the parking lot when I got off around 11 p.m. He told Tremblay that perhaps the van might still be there, if that's where they were staying in town. Detective Tremblay went undercover the next night in an unmarked car to wait out the mysterious van owner. By 1 a.m., nobody had shown up, but he stayed still, waiting until the sun came up the next day. But it was all in vain. The following day, the police sent out a notice to the public, saying to keep an eye out for a brown Honda van and report any sightings of it or any unusual behaviors around town. Of course, the public went nuts. The police received over 200 calls from concerned citizens asking if the reported vehicle had anything to do with that murder in Cumberland, or if they should be letting their kids walk around alone. School attendance in the valley was at the lowest they had been all year, and the buses were mostly empty that evening, 
besides a few high schoolers whose parents could care less. Terror had struck the community again, leaving few kids out of the house on any side roads. This guy struck in the daylight, unlike the common act of abducting by dark. But despite all the phone calls, the police couldn't find anything more to investigate. The necklace, although revealing where Claire was last seen alive, it led them nowhere else, and all the people calling in to report unusual behavior had brought many other petty crimes to their attention, but no one had any sights on the van or a suspicious man who looked like a killer. After a month of investigating, the case began to go cold. That is, until the fire department was alerted to a loud explosion from a quiet neighborhood just off the main street in Cumberland, a gas tank blowing up. And there it was, situated between two maple trees, was the van in flames. The only way they can even tell that it was the right vehicle was because of the door that had flown off when the gas tank exploded which displayed the brown that Miss Williams had described not four days before. The fire department had gotten to the scene before the police as they only had to come from the fire station three blocks away, and they had it mostly extinguished, luckily getting it down soon enough that the blaze hadn't spread to the surrounding forest in the dry May heat. As soon as they arrived, Detective Tremblay sent out a team in five different directions to see if they could track down the guy who had burned the van and he set to work himself, looking around the van for evidence. After two hours of searching, he came up with a discarded glove, diesel can, and set of footprints leading up to the burned corpse of the brown 1999 van. The shoe print came from a size 11 men's work boot, supposedly steel toe, as shown by the heavy indentions at the toe end of the print. And as given away by the glove, the diesel can had no traces of DNA or prints on it. The only truly definite thing they knew was that whoever had done this was wearing a size 11 boot. But that truthfully could be anyone. It wouldn't be the first time that someone had worn a different size shoe to cover their literal tracks in this town. But that is a story for another day. The search teams came up empty-handed, excluding one person, a woman by the name of Cassidy Darwin. She handed Detective Tremblay a shred of thick blue denim. She had been able to recover it from a low-hanging black locust branch, the intense thorns of the tree managing to tear even the tough material. But it wasn't enough, and the case again began to run cold. Really, what could they do with nothing more than likely a man wearing size 11 steel-toed boots and jeans? And despite the flattening of the case, Detective Tremblay never stopped looking. He traced the boot print back to the Markswork warehouse near where Brian had initially seen the brown van, but of course they couldn't tell how long ago the boots had been purchased, and that particular size and brand were the top seller of that store. The people that he would have had to interview to be just thorough enough would have had to be in the thousands. They didn't even know where the brown van had been purchased from. No one had come forward saying they had recently sold one, and they found nothing tracing it back to anyone. Miss Williams passed away due to her illness the following December, leaving the case with no resolution, as without their only witness, 
they had little to nothing. That is, until one of the many replays of various interviews of Brian and Melinda, Detective Trombley noticed one very small, puckered section at the seam of Brian's pants. His dark wash, thick-looking jeans. Brian was immediately called in for questioning, and while he sat, waiting for the detective, Trombley was already at the Walters' house, talking with Melinda after she had let him in to look around. She led him to the room her and Brian shared, and into Brian's closet. Not two minutes later, Detective Trombley has Melinda in the back of his car and a pair of dark wash jeans in an evidence bag. Upon returning to the police station, Trombley finally meets with Brian in the interrogation room, throwing the bag on the table. No one but the two of them know truly what went on, except three hours after he had gone in, the detective opened the door with a red and disheveled Brian Walters at his side hands cuffed behind his back. He had made a full confession. Brian Walters had had a sort of demeanor placed on him by the constant comments regarding his leaving university to help his sick mother, and it was that same demeanor that led him to the side of Melinda Cast, and he was not about to let that up. Helping people was the only thing that brought him joy and gratification, And for about two months before he got to Claire, she and her mother had been arguing a great deal, mostly just petty little things, but Brian had seen this as an opportunity for him to act on his desires. His feelings, he just, he needed to do something for this. He figured, since neither of them were really happy anymore, he had to take out one of the factors in that. And in his mind, Claire was the perfect candidate. He bought a van from a Craigslist ad in a town nearly an hour away, then drove it and parked it at the parking lot of the store he worked at. When he knew that Claire would be out of the house, he drove his own car to the van, swapped vehicles, then drove back to Cumberland and took Claire to the spot in the woods. He punched her across the face to knock her out, then tossed her to the ground, where her head and back cracked against large rocks that had been obscured by the thick moss that covered much of the forest. She was in a state that he just knew there was no way to save her, so he pulled her up from her spot in the ground and dragged her, after making sure no one was around, and dropped her into the trench where she was found. That all happened at approximately 5.45 p.m., As you might remember, Claire's approximate time of death was 7.30 p.m. that same night. Claire had been holding on for nearly two hours before her body gave out. Luckily, she would have been in a pretty heavy comatose state, so likely she did not suffer. Brian ran back to his van unnoticed, changed his clothing, and drove it back to the parking lot, switched vehicles yet again, and headed home as if nothing had happened. He was home by 6.15. He left the van parked in the same spot until he heard from Trombley that Miss Williams had seen the van drive away. Then he proceeded to drive it to its final resting place under the veil of night. 
Then the next morning, under the guise of going for a walk, he grabbed the gloves and gas can that he had stowed in the back seat, and once a flame made itself known, he took off into the woods, of course, tearing his pants in the process. He was very clear that Melinda had no idea, and that had only done what he had done to save her. Melinda was let go once Tremblay had a chance to interview her, and her story pretty much aligned with what she would have been aware of based on Brian's telling of it. He was later sentenced to 25 years in prison, the highest sentence available in Canada. By the time he would be released, he would be 68 years old, nearly six times the age Claire would ever get to be. And while Claire's cause of death was officially loss of blood, the causation was one man's hero complex. Thank you so much for listening to the first ever episode of Threat of Jeopardy, a fictional crime podcast. I hope you enjoyed, and until next time, stay safe out there. If you would like to follow the show on social media, you can find it on Instagram at Threat of Jeopardy, on Twitter at TOJPod, that's capital T-O-J-P-O-D, and on YouTube at Threat of Jeopardy Podcast. Thank you so much for your support. It means the world to me.